Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, my friend? Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Glad that you're here. This time around, on this episode, I have an interview with an author. Ryan White is joining us. We are going to talk about his book, Jimmy Buffett, A Good Life All the Way, in this interview. It's a biography of Jimmy Buffett. It's very well researched. Ryan White has written a couple of books. He wrote a book on Bruce Springsteen, and this book on Jimmy Buffett was about 300 pages long. And I'm going to read something from the book jacket. I think it's it's pretty well said. This is from Tom Kerkoran. Uh, he's written such books as Crime Almost Pays and The Quick Adios. He says, finally, a full-length Jimmy Buffett bio that's accurate and entertaining. Now, you'll notice he says, finally, there have not been that many serious, well-researched books about Jimmy Buffett relative to his fame and success. That's true. Do you think people know the real Jimmy Buffett? I wonder. I guess we'll get a little closer to understanding and knowing Jimmy Buffett on his album, Life on the flip side. It's coming out on Friday. I got an advanced copy, I'm happy to say. I was driving along listening, and I have to say, it passes the road test. I'll be writing a review of the album, which should be out tomorrow. This interview with Ryan White, we go to some unexpected places and some expected places, and I hope you enjoy. Let me know what you think, and if you've read the book, I'd like to know that as well. We're welcoming author Ryan White. We're going to be talking a little bit about his book, Jimmy Buffett, A Good Life All the Way. Thanks so much for making time for doing this, and congratulations on the book. Hey, thanks, Paul. Happy to do it and happy to be here. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, it's been, I think it's, uh, as we talk, I think it's been about two months since the book came out. And it's been a really fun and exhausting two months. A lot of nice emails from people who have read it. A lot of nice emails from people who helped uh, who helped get it done, and it's it's made for a nice summer, as it should. Uh, you know, a Jimmy Buffett book should make for a nice summer. It probably wasn't done right. <laughs> Do you think that people know the real Jimmy Buffett? That's kind of a complicated question, actually. It probably more complicated than 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 some people would think that it is, because you know there there are in in my mind there are two grand misconceptions about him, and they don't necessarily exist amongst the people who follow him the the, the closest and, and, and the biggest fans. But in the general culture, I think there are people who think that he is nothing but this, you know, stoned, uh, constantly stoned burnout playing, you know, one song over and over and over again. And then there are people that think that he is nothing but a corporate hack because Margaritaville has, has become such a big business and has its, uh, has its feet in, on, you know, on so many different beaches at this point. And, you know, he, you talk to the people who write songs with him and he's still intensely interested in songs and in music. And, and he is interested in business too, but, you know, and he's also not, he's not the burnout that's just wasting away on the, on the beach, or I, I, you know, I guess we should just say wasting away in Margaritaville. 
you know, he, he is engaged in, in a lot of different things, but he does also have plenty of time to play, pretty active play with, with surfing and, and fishing and, and flying around. But, uh, you know, he, he's always, from the very beginning, he's been a guy who's comfortable in a lot of different worlds. I remember Roger Bartlett told me, uh, Jimmy's original guitar player, told me a story about ending up in Los Angeles at some party up in the Hollywood Hills. And, and Roger was kind of you know, glued to the wall, just completely uncomfortable in the situation with all these Hollywood people. And, you know, this was, you know, 70, you know, late 74, early 75. Jimmy had one sort of hit with Come Monday and Jimmy was just as comfortable around those people as he was, you know, in the bars in Key West or, you know, anywhere else. He, he's always had an ability to fit into a lot of different worlds and that's helped him, you know, navigate 40 years of American culture now. Why did you decide that Jimmy Buffett would be the topic of your next book. Of all the different musicians or public figures, what was it about Jimmy Buffett? Well, I thought it'd be fun. I mean, the 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 short version of the long story is, you know, I, I wrote for the Oregonian newspaper out here for in, in Portland for, for almost 16 years. It would have been 16 years in October 2013 if they hadn't laid off a third of their staff in June 2013. And uh, then they made us work for the rest of the summer. And by then, you know, I'd already had this inkling of an idea that, you know, that like I'd seen the size and the scope of what Margaritaville had become. And I'd been really interested in in how, again, you know, use the phrase again, how you navigate these 40 years of American culture, which Margaritaville has, because I knew, you know, I'd been going to Key West. I grew up in Michigan and, and we used to go down to Florida and see my uncle in Tampa when I was a kid. And I started in college. I had a had a friend who went to journalism school at the University of Miami, and I flew down to, to see him, and me and him and his roommate hopped in a old beat-up convertible and drove down to Key West, and that was probably 94, 94 or 95. I think it was early 95. It was just a few months before I turned 21, which gloriously didn't matter down there. And, and you know, I'd seen it over the years. I'd seen the way Key West had changed in my little time frame, and I knew, you know, I, I knew some of the stories from the 70s, and I knew Margaritaville was kind of this song that it started sort of marked the end of that that era that Jimmy found when he got there in 71 and you know and then launched everything going forward and so I was really curious to see if you know if, if you traveled the modern Margaritaville landscape could you see any signs of, of of what it was from what it became and and I always viewed the book as as more a cultural history of Margaritaville in America, really, you know, suburban America in, in some ways, than a biography of, of Jimmy Buffett. It just so happens that what powers Margaritaville is Jimmy and Jimmy's personality, Jimmy's drive, Jimmy's goodwill. And so in the end, you know, it had to be as much about him as it was about the song and all the other, you know, the, everything else that, that went along with it and into it. But I was all of that happened in my lifetime, basically. Again, I was born in '74. The song came out in 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 '77, and so it was really a way to explore one thread of the American story during my lifetime. And then I lost this job, and I thought, well, it'll also be a lot of fun. You know, I got to live on a sailboat in Key West for a week. I got to just wander New Orleans for no good reason. Took a couple trips to Las Vegas, getting to hang out in in Muscle Shoals in Florence, Alabama, with Norbert Putnam who produced a bunch of those old records, was just fantastic. It was a pretty good way to spend some time while I tried to figure out how I move through the world next and kind of make my own accommodations into, you know, some other next phase, whatever that is. 
We're joined by Ryan White, author of Jimmy Buffett, A Good Life All the Way. You just mentioned a lot of places there synonymous with the Buffett story. Yeah. Key West, now, now Las Vegas, but was there a place that most resonated with you? A lot of times writers, when they're writing a book, there's a moment, usually when they're alone, where they just think, man, thank God I decided to write this book. <laughs> yeah, usually they're not writing when they when they do that. Usually the book's over. It's... I don't think I ever, I told somebody the other day, there's enough distance between I, when I actually wrote the book and uh, that till now that I can actually convince myself that it was even fun to write it. It was definitely fun to report it. I feel like, you know, I think the moment where I felt like I was as close to the origin of Margaritaville as I was going to, as I was going to get in, in 2015 when I was when I was reporting it was I was staying uh, again, I was, I was used Airbnb and I was staying on a sailboat on stock Island at this Marina and the Marina had a bar and it, the bar was basically, you know, shambled together through, through bits and pieces that uh, weren't used when they were constructing the Marina. And, you know, the locals were selling buck 75 beers out of plastic coolers. And, you know, there's this one night in there where the, the, the old woman working behind the bar was just, you know, just kind of leathery and tattooed. And she looked at me and she goes, who are you? Well, I'm just, I'm down here. I'm staying on a boat. I'm doing some work. And it's like, oh, you staying in the rich part or the poor part? Like, well, what's the difference? She goes, do you have lights over your sidewalks? I said, yeah. And she goes, rich part. And then she <laughs> got me a beer. And, you know, one of those, one of those fantastic Florida thunderstorms roared out of nowhere disappeared pretty much just as quickly. But, you know, it's just pouring rain for a minute. And so I decide to have another one. And I start talking to the guy at the end of the bar. And he tells me he'd once been Minnesota's most wanted fugitive. And I went, well, what did you do? He said, nothing. But they said that I did. And I thought I'd go to Peru. I said, well, I'm sure it was a nice time of year in Peru. Um, and, you know, later I went back to the boat and I jumped online and I couldn't find any evidence of anybody who looked like this guy who had been Minnesota's most wanted fugitive. But it was a great story, and I bought him a couple of beers just in case he was telling the truth. And you know, because I'm not good at fighting. But it, <laughs> but but it, it felt like you know, it felt like this place where anything could happen, and there was one of everybody in the bar. And so, I mean, that was one of those moments where, like, this is great. Sitting, you know, sitting in Tom Corcoran's office in Lakeland, Florida, just going through old uh, old demo tapes that that Jimmy had left behind on the boats and Tom would clean up the boats and come back and he's put them all on, you know, he's digitized them all now and they're sitting on his computer going through just old photo albums, you know, shots of, 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 of Jimmy and Jane and Tom and his wife, Judy and, and, and groovy gray, you know, dressed up for dinner in the Bahamas and just lounging on random islands in the seventies. I mean, these were, these were pretty special moments of a, of a time that, that happened once. You know, and it, it was, you know, everything that they were doing was, was, was this kind of new and wonderful thing for them. And, and getting to do that was a great moment back to, you know, Muscle Shoals and Florence talking with Norbert Putnam, we were sitting in a wine bar and, you know, Norbert went on, you know, not only did he produce these records, he played on like a, you know, something like 125 Elvis songs. He played bass. The fantastic bass line in Promised Land is, is, is Norbert Putnam. And so we're sitting in, in this wine bar in Florence, Alabama, and Dave Briggs, who played piano on a bunch of Elvis songs, Norbert's really good friend comes in and they start talking and he goes over to another table and Norbert and I continue the conversation and Ray Charles comes on the, the radio 
uh, in the wine bar. And I said, do you ever play with Ray? And, and Norbert goes, I did hee-haw with Ray. And, and, and so there were, there were moments like that kind of every step of the way, you know, lunch and a dinner with, with Roger Bartlett hearing those, those very first Coral Reefer Band stories, you know, just down the street from where they first rehearsed in Key West when Jimmy got the whole band together for the first time. There were a ton of moments like that. And then the goal was to actually sit down by myself in a basement in Portland, Oregon, where it was raining and cold, and try and translate all of the fun I had onto the page. Well, this book that you wrote, something that sticks out in my mind is that relative to Jimmy Buffett's fame and success, there have not been a lot of what you would call a full-on biography about him. Did you? No. Yeah. Why do you yeah. think that that is? And did you use any of the other, like the Steve Ng book, did you use any of them as kind of like a reference? Well, a couple questions in there. You know, my editor asked me the same question. The first question, my editor at Touchstone is to why haven't there been more of these? You know, I, I think to a degree, it's, it's really hard to do. You know, he, he has moved through the world at such a pace and, and there are so many people kind of riding along and, and there in the wake that uh, it, it, it's kind of a, it, it's a really tough timeline to, to straighten out and, and to sort out and to organize. But I think the bigger thing is people just don't take him very seriously in modern times. I, I think he's just, you know, oh, yeah, there's Jimmy Buffett and the Parrot Heads with their funny hats. They're coming to town. I mean, if you read the reviews of the shows, they're almost uniformly the same. Everybody who goes out to review a show focuses on the size of the you know, the size of the brand, the the brightness of the dress and the crowd, and, you know, that Jimmy seemed to have fun. And, and I don't think that's a seem to. I think he, he genuinely, genuinely still enjoys getting on stage. But I don't know that people kind of take a look at, at just what Margaritaville has become, kind of how – what the growth of that means and, and how hard it is to do. I, I You know, I spoke with someone – a couple of weeks ago as we were trying to hash out whether or not it's kind of the most successful song ever. And, and it might well be. Uh, it, it's certainly the most profitable since, uh, since Happy Birthday lost its uh, trademark copyright. And so I, I, I just don't know that people take it that seriously. And the trick is to take it seriously while still having fun with it. You know, it's, it's the old Bruce Springsteen line from his South by Southwest speech about, you know, Go out there every night like your absolute life depends on it and remember that it's only rock and roll. You got to have both of those things. With regard to uh, Steve's book, you know, I gave it a quick look to see to see who he talked to going through the acknowledgments and stuff. I kind of consciously didn't read it. Uh, and, and that has nothing to do with, with with Steve's book. It has everything to do with the fact that I wanted to to take this on on my own and just build it myself. And I thought that I could I thought that I could do that. I think you get in, uh, you, you can kind of get in the danger of, of repeating something that doesn't need to be repeated when you do something like that. And so I, I just kind of, you know, I have a copy of it. I should probably, you know, really sit down and read it now that, uh, now that mine is done. But I did the same thing when I was in, you know, when I was in newspapers, if I had to profile somebody and a profile of them came out while I was doing it, I would glance at it, but I didn't want to read it too hard because you, you just don't want to accidentally repeat things even and you know and that can happen so uh you know i should dig into that copy at some point we're joined by ryan white author of jimmy buffett a good life all the way a biography of singer-songwriter jimmy buffett i'm very curious what did you tell jimmy buffett's management to try to persuade them 
I can only guess to <laughs> present your idea to Jimmy Buffett. You know, I, I just tried to as honestly and completely as I could as I could to explain myself and where it was coming from and, and how I was approaching it and what I was doing it. I you know, I've done a book a book like this is nothing more than a very, 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 very large newspaper story in a lot of ways. You know, it, it's far and away the biggest and the hardest thing that I've ever done. But the the basic concepts are the same. And and one of the things that I found in 16 years of journalism is that it's, you know, just you just be honest and straightforward with people. So it was really simple. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I'm writing this book. I'm I'm coming from it from the direction of of kind of the cultural story of Margaritaville. And and I would love to chat with Jimmy if he would be interested in doing that. And then I kept them updated whenever our paths were going to cross and, and, and never in, hey, do you want to talk now? It was always, you know, if, if Jimmy has any questions about this, would like to meet me, talk to me, yell at me, whatever, I, I you know, I'd be happy to to answer these in person. And, you know, the first time that we uh, the first time we crossed paths completely on accident, just just dumb luck on my part was I happened to be in Pascagoula the day they dedicated a bridge to him. Right, you know, right up the bayou from, uh, right down the bayou from from where his grandfather's house was, and he and Mac flew in, and they did a, a nine song acoustic set on the beach, and there was beer and cheeseburgers, and it was a just a really lovely, obscenely hot September day down on the Gulf Coast, and it was a great time. And so I just sent him an email and said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to be here, just so you know, and if there's any questions, I'm happy to answer them." And you know, we never heard back from them. They got the emails, but and stuff, but you know, we we never heard back. But, you know, and I give Jimmy here, you know, I owe him, I owe him a nod of thanks anyways, because he could have made this really hard to do. He, he's maintained a lot of friendships over a, over a long, 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 long time. And people who have worked for him work for him for a long, long time and they feel loyal to him and and they like him. And it was funny, Mac McAnally, when I was talking to Mac, he says, he said at one point that, uh, that, you know, he goes, you just don't run into people who have bad things to say about uh, about Jimmy Buffett. And I, I said at that point, I said, you know, I've been working on this for about 18 months. And I said, I wasn't looking for that specifically, but I was expecting to run into it by now. And I never even ran into it. Like I ran into people who had problems with his touring accountant. I ran into people who had problems with other musicians, with with management, with tour managers, but never, never Jimmy. And, uh, you know, he could have he could have told all the to talk to me and they probably wouldn't have talked to me. And uh, as far as I know, that never happened because almost exclusively everybody I, I tried to get a hold of said yes. I mean, when I got my, when I finally found an email address for, for Mike Utley, he emailed me back like 15 minutes later and said, I'd, I'd love to talk, but I'm getting ready to get on a plane to New York. Can I call you in a couple of days? And a couple of days later, my phone rang and it was Mike. You know, John Colin, the CEO of Margaritaville, it was the same deal. He was checking into their hotel and I was staying there and I went up and introduced myself. And, you know, he's always been really quick to get back to me on email with questions that I had. And he was very generous with his time to explain to me just how the, the brand began to grow and became this, uh, you know, what, what this year will be probably close to a $2 billion brand. So the big question for me is this, if you had a chance now that you've written the book, to just have a few minutes to ask him some questions, Jimmy Buffett, what would you have asked him? You know, I, I see this book. I've always seen that, you know, especially now as I've talked about it some and, and thought about it more in, it, in its kind of finished state. It's the story of, of, of how you make your way through the world. And now he's done it with a lot more flair and a lot more style. And, you know, 
Jimmy and, and Margaritaville specifically, it's kind of a, a, a different way of making your way through the music business. And, you know, he, he took some leaps of faith that worked out. You know, I, I think about Radio Margaritaville and how that began is just an internet, an internet radio station that really marked him, Jimmy as understanding the internet far and its impact far better than the rest of the record industry did. I'd really like to talk to him about you know, that period in the 80s when he was kind of wrestling with all of this. I mean, I, I write this in the book. There's the line from uh, Where's the Party on Somewhere Over China where he says, you know, sometimes I wish the radio would learn another song. And, you know, there's there are these these moments in some of his early writings. There's a, a script for a Margaritaville movie that never got made and and some early drafts from Tales from Margaritaville where and even into Tales from Margaritaville where the scene eventually found a home where, you know, these characters are, are kind of aghast at what's happened at, at Graceland and what's happened in Hannibal, Missouri, and the way that, that people are cashing in on Elvis and Mark Twain, you know, and, and, and I, think, I think it wasn't na- necessarily a natural and easy decision to, to take advantage of, of Margaritaville's popularity. And, you know, there were, there were valleys there, especially in the, the early to mid-80s where, you know, the records weren't selling and, you know, but the, but the concert Tickets were always, you know, doing okay. But, you know, I, I think it's that kind of uh, that kind of discussion is one that I would really like to have is, is, is about the, the thought process through that whole thing and how you kind of convince yourself or make the argument to yourself. Convincing yourself makes it sound like, you know, you're having to talk yourself into something. But, but what that conversation is like when you make your peace with the fact that, yeah, this is pretty good. People like this. And, you know, there are a lot of people who who aren't lucky enough to have one thing that, that everybody loves. Only one went to the top 10, but you know, I, I still, you know, I'm not a particularly huge fan of cheeseburger in paradise, but I see the reaction in the, in the basketball arena when he plays it and people go nuts. And it's a pretty great uh, thing to be able to do for people. But that discussion about, you know, the, the very, very early days of the brand and those, those kind of lean years in the eighties where the scene had changed so much from the seventies, you know, the eighties in, in general, kind of a kind of a bridge decade for Jimmy. By the 90s the crowds were huge again and the parrot head thing had really uh you know had begun to take off and you know got a name and uh you know the early 90s the parrot head club started but but navigating those things. It's really it's a book about navigation and how you kind of make your way through the world. Somebody asked me the other day how uh how all those people from Key West uh, survived the early Key West years and I said well some of them didn't but you know, some of them did, and one or two of them uh, survived it rather uh, spectacularly. In, in Jimmy's case, and so those are the questions that I, that I would like to ask. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a little less interested in, you know, how do you choose your set list or, or any of that stuff. It's that works itself out. But the, the the '80s, I think, would be an especially interesting time to explore. Well, now that we're talking about Jimmy Buffett's songs, I warned you that this was going to happen. already (laughs) already now don't tell us what the song is your favorite jimmy buffett song don't tell us we want you to sing a line from that song right now do it (laughs) do it right now after 86 years of perpetual motion if he likes you he'll smile and he'll say Jimmy, some of it's tragic, some of it's magic some of it's tragic but i had a good life all the way I had a feeling. Just that. <laughs> I had a feeling. It's, that it's, was it's too be good a marketing opportunity. <laughs> it's too good a marketing opportunity. You got you to dance through that hoop. 
Well, wasn't that one of the songs that Bob Dylan mentioned of Jimmy Buffett that he particularly liked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of, he went to Paris and uh, Death of an Unpopular Poet, and he's, you know, he and Joan Baez have covered A Pirate Looks at 40. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of hoped this book might be able to do, if, you know, if it could do anything at all, would be to remind people what it all was like back then and, and, and remind people that the guy's a, a heck of a writer, too. It's, it's funny what time does to the way that we view things that we become really familiar with. I just finished Noel Monk's book about the early years of Van Halen, that 78 through uh, 84, 85 period where he was the tour manager and uh, the tour manager and then the uh, their business manager. And it just kind of reframed for me how different what they were doing was. It's like now like I went back, I listened to their first album the other day trying to imagine you know, their first tour, they were opening for Journey and Montrose and trying to imagine what it would have been like if you had no idea who these guys were hearing them hit the stage with I'm on fire. Uh, it would have blown your mind. And it's, you know, now it's, you know, you hear it out the window of every every car that drives by that's listening to to su- summer FM rock. It's, it, it's a little less revolutionary over time because time just sands the edges off of things. And, uh, you know, Jimmy worked really really hard on on a lot of different uh on a lot of different things on his on his stage persona on his you know uh on the way that he he toured on the songs themselves and so you know i was hoping to remind people of that and we we get into the dylan thing in the book a little bit because when dylan listed jimmy as one of his favorite songwriters i think a lot of people went what the guy with the margaritaville candle sense but you know dylan for for all of his his brilliance, for all of his his poetry, for all of you know his his ways of just dashing through the years and, and ducking in and out of different things, Dylan is at his heart a song and dance man. That's what he is, and that's what he does. He's he's got just as much court jester in him as Jimmy Buffett does, and Jimmy Buffett is also a song and dance man. So as I, I say in the book, a song and dance man is gonna recognize a song and dance man, and and it makes sense to me that a, a song and dance man would admire another song and dance man. You know, they've got you know Jimmy Buffett has just as much court jester in him as as, as Bob Dylan does, applied slightly differently, but you know that grin, uh, the grin that you see them uh, both uh, flash sometimes sense to me that they would they would recognize and, and admire each other you know one time i was you interviewing know, one- the percussionist of jimmy buffett eric darkin and mm-hmm. i was telling him i said you know this might sound really really crazy to you but i think that jimmy buffett could do a very good vocal jazz record and he almost cut me off and he said oh yeah i absolutely believe that <laughs> And I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on that. You know, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. I mean, Eric would, you know, Eric, Eric sees those little moments that are, you know, that are the sound check moments and the studio moments and, and all of those things. Uh, that would be interesting to see. I'd really like to see him go back and do, you know, one more record or two more records in kind of the spirit of of those very early ones and not so much you know just in terms of instrumentation where they where they kind of strip it strip it down and you know i i love you know i i, I love robert greenwich and robert greenwich's sound but it would be interesting to hear him do a song where it's you know, just doyle on pedal steel and you get a bass player you know you get uh you get you get bass guitar and you know just work with mac 
Mac and Mike and, and, and strip it down and do something, you know, kind of really spare and, and see if you could, you know, dial in, you know, kind of in the way that Cash did some of those later records with, with Rick Rubin where they stripped him down. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these weird things with musicians where everybody always loves people who have been around a long time, especially the, the, the default pretty much is always those early records because they sound raw and they sound immediate and they sound, you know, they sound authentic is the word that gets, gets put around. But you start talking to musicians and what it is, is they don't know what they're doing in the studio. And so by record three or four, they're actually much better at their craft than those first couple of records and things start to smooth out. And, and, you know, they, they understand better how to translate their ideas. And, and Jimmy certainly knows how to do that with, with, you know, with the assistance of Mike Utley and, and Mac McAnally, especially who are just brilliant, brilliant musicians. And so it would be fun to see him either strip it down and, and, and try and apply what you've learned to those, those early ideas or go in a completely different direction. As you said, I think a jazz vocal record would be fast. I think anything that would make people freak out a little would be fun to, uh, would be fun to hear him do. Interesting. Well, this is probably a very difficult question. You got to speak with so many people all over who were associated and are associated with Jimmy Buffett. Again, a difficult question. Who would you say was the most interesting person? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, it's not so much difficult as it is impossible. I mean, somebody like Deborah McCall, who was playing in folk hiking up to Atlanta to play on gigs and eventually, you know, be, kind of became one of the original Reeferettes, who's, you know, she's now a, a, a therapist in uh, outside Atlanta. Fascinating life. Roger Bartlett, you know, has this, this you know, love of jazz and, and gypsy guitar and art. And, you know, all of those those early uh, Key West stories, you know, key, or road stories, really. He had an apartment in Key West for two months or had the keys for it and realized that he was never going to be there because they were on the road so much. So he got rid of it. You know, I mean, Tom Corcoran gave Buffett his first beer in Key West. Tom was first down in Key West in, in the late 60s with, with, the, uh, with the Navy. And, you know, he, he got to know Jerry Jeff Walker and Jim Harrison and, and, and Tom McGuane. He told me a hilarious story that didn't make the book about uh, going with Jerry Jeff Walker to a hootenanny on Stock Island with a bunch of Navy guys who were sitting there playing Michael Row Your Boat Ashore with crew cuts and stuff. And finally, like Jerry Jeff couldn't take it anymore. And he played one of his and one guy had a Jerry Jeff Walker record and recognized him. And then for the rest of the night, it turned into a little private Jerry Jeff Walker concert while uh, Tom's very young son, Sebastian, slept in the guitar case. Tom has, you know, Tom has gone coast to coast and around the world. And, you know, he kept his, he kept his wits about him through the whole thing, which, which helps. He was, as he says, he, you know, he tried most everything once, maybe twice, but he was never that into to anything but beer. And so that helps the, uh, the memory, you know, so there were a lot of hazy recollections of the seventies from the people that I, the people that I talked to, but, you know, Tom was, uh, he's lived a heck of a life and he's written a bunch of great mystery novels and, he he has a big, huge memoir in him if he wants to write it. I don't know that he wants to write it, but he's been in all the right places at all the right times, and uh, he's got the brain and the talent to to really translate those stories. And so, if I if, if you're forcing me to uh, to choose one person, I would say I, I would say Tom. But man, it's you know from Key Sykes to I mean Todd Snyder, Will Kimbrough, uh, just the the definition of a of a consummate professional working musician just you know 
who's currently out on the road with Emmylou Harris. And then as soon as they get back from that, he'll be making one of his records or helping a friend make one of theirs or playing with Rodney Crowell or somebody else. You know, there's a lot of interesting people in the world. And uh, I was lucky to, to get a chance to talk to a bunch of them for this. When I was reading the book, someone that I thought, well, that's interesting, was when you encountered John Colon, the CEO yeah. of Margaritaville. Yeah. I liked that because it was kind of an unexpected look at another side. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know, I, I don't know if I use this phrase exactly in the book, but he's kind of straight business ninja. Really nice guy. As, as I say in the acknowledgments, he's exactly as tan as you would expect the uh, CEO of, of, of Margaritaville to be. But he's really, really sharp. And, and, and he understands, he understands what Jimmy's appeal is. And not a lot of people over the years have. A lot of business people missed out on that. A lot of record uh, executives missed out on that. But, you know, they met because John got kind of his, the company that, the company that he was working for, which basically did leveraged buyouts of, of companies like RC Cola and Snapple and, and stuff like that. They decided to move down to Florida. He wasn't particularly thrilled with that being, you know, a young guy in Manhattan making a, a bunch of money at the time. But he moved down there and he had a friend who who told him, well, you know, if there's a social scene anywhere out there, uh, anywhere down there, my friend Jane will know about it. And that was Jane Buffett, Jimmy's wife. And so they met John and, and Jimmy met that way. And, and Jimmy took John to Jazz Fest in New Orleans one year, headlining. And John stood there at the side of the stage and just you know, he knew he worked with RC Cola, and everybody knows RC Cola is a cola brand, a soda. But uh, and was like, you know, this stands for something. This is this is a brand with meaning. And uh, you know, he told me that over the years, and, and he didn't want to get into who's and what's, and, and I respected that. But uh, that over the years, you know, other musicians have called him up saying, "Hey, can you do? Can you do for or managers? If, can you do for our guy what you did?" for Jimmy with Margaritaville. And there's just no there there. Uh, there's no, it's hard to, there are a lot of brands in the world. There's, there's only a handful of lifestyle brands that, uh, that anybody can, can recognize. And, uh, you know, Margaritaville is definitely one of them, you know, back to that discussion I was having about, uh, there being no other song like it. The only thing that really, you know, in terms of lifestyle brands, I guess you could look at somebody like Martha Stewart a little bit, but the thing that uh, – the closest analogy to me is actually Star Wars, uh, which also came out in 77 in the way that uh, it's just this expanding universe. And, and everything that happens happens under – in that uh, in that galaxy far, far away. With Margaritaville, everything they do happens on that little island, uh, no matter how big it is. But John recognized that, and, and John had the, you know, the talent to – to, to do the work and make the deals because they didn't, you know, they didn't have piles of money starting out to, you know, capital to build or any of these other things. They had to kind of scuff and scheme their way through it. And, and John did it. He was really, really smart and deserves a lot of credit for, for what it's become. We're talking with Ryan White, author of Jimmy Buffett, A Good Life All the Way. What was the most surprising thing that you learned as a result of writing this book? most surprising thing that I learned. The actual location of the cheeseburger in paradise makes it in there. I'm not going to give that away. Uh, it's in the book. Everybody can buy it. Um, <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I really, I, I found it interesting 
surprising to me, maybe not the right word, but I was really interested in exploring because people forget that Jimmy was, you know, kind of a that early Austin scene as Austin was just coming around uh, after Willie moved down there in the 70s. And, you know, how Nashville at the time was dominated by uh, what they called the Nashville sound, the big glossy kind of productions with George Jones and Tammy Wynette and Chet Atkins, uh, who, who kind of masterminded the whole thing. People would ask him to define the Nashville sound and he'd jingle the change in his pocket. And what, ha- what happened was, well, everybody was looking for the next voice to put underneath their orchestrated, uh, their orchestrated uh, country music. There was, there was from below, there were these kind of rebels that were chipping away at it. Uh, you know, Chris Christopherson was, was kicking around and Guy Clark showed up in town and Willie left Nashville and, and moved to Austin where Jerry Jeff Walker had set up shop. And, and just kind of how well Jimmy fit into the, those scenes where we don't really think about him. Because, I mean, we, you know, he, he essentially flunked out of Nashville two and a half, three times before one day everybody in Nashville started sounding like like Jimmy Buffett, you know, Kenny Chesney took it to the, to the inevitable, uh, extreme and, and kind of became fish to, to Buffett's dead. But people forget again, just he, he was of that era of, of songwriters that were, that were outside the norm, but were quietly chipping away at what was happening in Nashville. And he, you know, he fit in perfectly in Texas. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a founding member of that scene or anything. I always think of the song, uh, Brahma fear where he says things, you know, I'd like to ride the rodeo, but I got Brahma fear. And I've always thought of that song as a little bit of, you know, I'd love to be completely in that scene, but it's not quite me. I'm more comfortable over here with the, with the boat and, uh, and, and all of that. But I think as I laid out the story of, of Nashville and Austin in the seventies and realizing just how, how well he fit in with these, these other kind of more how to phrase this i don't know more respected is the right word you know there's there, there's a little more street cred for a guy like chris christopherson than jimmy buffett nowadays but you know they were they were kind of running running parallel to each other there this book as a result of writing it in any way has it changed the way that you look at your own life yeah yeah absolutely i mean I, in february i started uh Somebody offered me a, a firm here in Portland, offered me a job as, as a copywriter uh, doing advertising copy, and we do some public relations and, and, and public affairs. And that was not anything that I ever imagined myself doing. You know, I was always, I always wanted to be in newspapers. I always wanted to do these things that I've gotten to do and, and, and been lucky to do. But it was the right opportunity at the right time. And, you know, I think the, you know, the book, uh, back to, you know, kind of making your peace with, uh, the idea that, you know, people like Margaritaville, I'll give them Margaritaville and it will allow me to do these other things in my life that I want to do. And it's not a bad gig uh, getting to play this song that people love every night, too. You know, I didn't imagine doing this, but it's a good gig. It's, you know, and I work with good people and it allows me to, you know, I don't have to worry about where the mortgage is coming from this month now, which wasn't the case when I was doing freelance for, for three years while I worked on the book. I worried every night about the next month's mortgage payment. And so, yeah, I mean, it kind of helped me make my peace with, you know, in one way moving, you know, more into an adult world. And we don't often think about turning to Jimmy Buffett for figuring out how to be an adult. We think of it the exact opposite way. But, you know, the story of Margaritaville is really the story of making your way through the world in in a somewhat responsible way. 
you know, some of those people from Key West didn't make it out. You know, we think about a guy like Phil Clark, who Jimmy wrote a pirate books at 40 about, you know, Phil ended up dying under pretty mysterious circumstances found on the beach in, in Northern California, washed ashore. And as piratical as that is, I don't think that it's a particularly happy ending. And so you've got to, at some point, you've got to make some decisions with people other than yourself in in mind. And so I, I think working on that, working on this book kind of helped me, helped me do that a little bit. Ryan, you are wise. Uh, or at the very least, I have my eyes open. Uh, I don't know about wisdom, but I can sometimes see what's right in front of me. Well done on the book. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. It was a ton of fun to do, and it was it was great to chat with you. It was great to talk to you after having read the book. I'm very glad we had this chance. I can tell like, you have a very a very perceptive and inquiring mind. Uh, if you don't hold on to your curiosity, you know there was this there was this quote from Jim Harrison that's in the movie the documentary Tarpon, where he where he talks about you know. You know, life shouldn't just be these this this run of diminishing enthusiasms. Uh, he phrased it a little bit better than that because he's Jim Harrison and I'm not. And a lot of those enthusiasms, you know, find them starts with a little bit of curiosity. And I think I think we should all carry a uh, carry a little bit more of that out into the world. Uh, if they want to find out more, of course, the book is Jimmy Buffett: A Good Life All the Way. And if they want to visit your website, it's RyanWWhite.com. Yep, and you can find me on Twitter at that Ryan White, and uh, yeah, just wherever wherever fine books are sold. All right, buddy. Great, thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour, hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song: Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G things improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.